Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. and that lady right by those crows behind me right there that lady there she has completely white hair gray hair she must be 65 or 70 at least and she's just got her little body surfing board or whatever they're called and she's just playing in the waves and it's just one of the most enlightening things to watch and there she goes again to catch another wave right there I did take a video I might include it I don't like to include videos of people but this is just a beautiful example of play and being in nature and there she is. Oh, she just dove in. Oh, and then she gets back up. Whoa, the wave kind of crashes against her. She's still just going. She's just... Oh, she knows these waves well. There's a woman over there. White hair. She's just out in the waves and watch what she does. at the beach today because I only have two more weeks after this to just play and have fun so I'm gonna focus more on that and also I'm feeling the PMS since I've been off the meds last time PMS and this time PMS I can feel it more and I feel like I just need to be by myself in case I get mad at people for no reason and I decided to start tracking that better. I used to keep track of it so I would know, but I never did recently. And I was climbing a mountain, and at the top I had this cramp, and I mistook it for just a climbing a mountain cramp. And it was actually PMS cramps. And when I get PMS cramps, if I don't take some kind of anti-inflammatory right away at the first hint of it, there can be trouble. Trouble in the form of my guts getting really inflamed and basically wanting to evacuate. So imagine being at the top of a mountain after climbing for two hours and feeling that sensation. 
and it's too late to take the anti-inflammatory which will stop that from happening so yeah long story short I took four little poops down the side of a mountain and one in the outhouse at the bottom so it wasn't pleasant so I learned my lesson to keep track of these things again and more for more than just emotional reasons but physical reasons too and I told that story to a couple people and they thought it was pretty funny that I had to poop four times down the side of a mountain. So actually I was looking at my calendar and noticed that I should get my period on Sunday and then seeing that feeling off today tells me that it's PMS for sure and then I also knew to evacuate the situation not just evacuate my bowels it's not time for that yet but evacuate the situation and just be by myself. When I was on the meds for all those years, I didn't really feel PMS. And that's one of the main reasons I would track it before is because I knew that was the day I was going to crave a lot of sugar and junk, so I just went with it. And I also knew it was the day I was gonna be kind of moody and really easily riled up about nothing, so. It's also good to keep track of that for myself because I could think, oh, I'm experiencing some kind of symptoms or people around me that know me as or, or something. So I can plan for that day to just not be around people or to give people a heads up that I'm PMSing or just avoid people so then they don't start thinking, oh, what's wrong with her? She looks like she's being symptomatic and just not even giving anyone a chance to think in that way. Because I'm still thinking that I probably won't tell people right away when I go home. I'll wait to see how I settle in. It's really nice to be at the beach in the sun with my feet in the sand. And I actually remember just now that I brought three altruism quarters. It took a while for that quarter to disappear from the spot that I left it, but finally somebody did find the quarter and feel so lucky. And it was imbued with the intention of this game of wanting someone to feel lucky. But it was put there intentionally, it wasn't a mistake. When I was here the other day with a friend, I actually saw somebody with one of those little metal detectors and I said to my friend, Beach is not a beach without somebody with one of those metal detectors. So I just realized now that this is actually a good place to put some altruism quarters. I have three. And one is, one is from 2016. This one is Crater Lake, Oregon, 1859 from 2005. And this one is Oh my goodness, 1982, the year of my birth. I don't know if you can see that, but... I'm gonna keep this one for myself. This will be altruism towards myself. What are the odds of a 1982 quarter in the three that I picked out for today? Oh, there's some people with horses. I'm a little bit afraid of horses. I rode one when I was very young and it was scary and jumpy and twitchy, but so was I. So 
Yeah, but not exactly, because once I went blueberry picking and I was walking and this horse just sort of ran up beside me and so I took a selfie of us and maybe I'll put that picture in here if I can find it. I might not have it on this phone. So yeah, I just thought of a fun game if I could put something on a quarter on a beach and if they find it and they open it, then they win a prize. That would be kind of a fun altruism game. So maybe I'll do that for next time. So I'm leaving this quarter here for the next person who has one of those little metal detectors to find. Maybe I'll bury it a little bit. This is the stick I've been using to play in the sand. It sort of goes like this. Dig a hole. It's like burying treasure. Now, this person's gonna feel really lucky because they're actually gonna be looking for money and jewels. And the other thing I wanted to say about when I realized that I'm expecting my period on Sunday is that I read in that Hardy Nutritionals book that people who have strong PMS can actually take four doses of four capsules for the week before. So as soon as I told my poop story, I realized that I could be taking four doses instead of three. So yesterday I took four doses of the Hardy Nutritionals and today I'm just about to take my fourth dose and I'll continue with that until I get my period and see if that actually helps. I don't know if it'll help with cramps. I get really bad cramps. I have to take naproxen because if I don't, I end up pooping four times down the side of a mountain. That might actually be good for the mountain, but it's not very fun. I probably could have started taking four on Monday instead of yesterday, which was Wednesday. So I'll probably put that in my calendar next time. Start taking four hearty nutritionals today. Four doses of four. Because yeah, I'm noticing I'm back to my regular old mood swings that I always would have for all the years before I was ever medicated. And I don't want them to be mistaken for mental illness symptoms. So I'll have to adjust my reality and lifestyle design for that day. And also planning for that day. So putting in my calendar, things like that.
Lots of people just in their leisure down here. One of the horses really doesn't want to come down the ramp onto the beach. <coughs> Could really use one of those animal whispers right about now to say, hey horse, what's going on? He's on the beach now, he's okay. And I'm going to leave talking about those business extrapolations and the Ken Wilber podcast, Superhuman Extrapolations, until I'm feeling a bit better in terms of this PMS stuff because I'm just not feeling it, which is totally fine. It's, it's, it's part of being female and not on medications that sort of mess with that natural rhythm. If I went to a doctor, they might say, Oh, you have PMDD, let me give you some antidepressants. Well, sorry, I've already been on those, I don't want to. I'm okay with having a little bit of downtime. Hey, it made me go to the beach and spend some time all by myself. And it's beautiful here with the hang gliders and the horse riders and the body surfers and the people with their dogs playing fetch and me just sitting earthing in the sand. Look at the horses go, they love the ocean. They're gonna body surf too. That one guy's taking a little time to get down to the water. I think it's time to take my hearty nutritionals, my fourth dose. I wonder if it will help me not to have to take even naproxen. I think I have about six more days of taking Benadryl and hopefully by that time, if I had to take any naproxen, I will have taken it already. So after that point, I'll be completely medication-free until I have to take some naproxen again. I remember I didn't have to take naproxen when I was 100% raw. Then I didn't get menstrual cramps. So hopefully at some point there's a way to be 100% medication-free.
medications are designed to stop change or stop people from changing. So if I have high blood pressure, I could change, I could do something about the way I eat and actually put energy and time into learning about how to eat better or preparing healthier foods or spending a bit more money on food, etc. Or I could just take a pill and just continue to sit on the couch and watch TV. So it actually keeps us entertained. We can just keep being entertained, keep eating the same unhealthy processed foods that make certain food companies a lot of money. And with psychological stuff, it actually prevents us from changing. So there's a change process happening in MAP consciousness that the medication stops. And maybe it also prevents us from changing certain things in our lives. So maybe we have people around us that we don't want to be around including maybe family for some people yet we can take a pill and then just still be around those people that otherwise we just might have to change our situation so it prevents change but and it stops us from making changes and it it takes away our energy to make changes and so many things if there were no medications we'd all really have to change as human beings and we'd probably stop buying all this crap that's killing us because we couldn't rely on medications to to temporarily make it at least better according to the numbers on the tests that we get but I don't know how much it really improves quality of life in the long run maybe it extends life to a certain point but it doesn't really decrease morbidity it's not like we can take a magic pill and be living the exact wonderful life that we want. So really, it actually stops us from being intelligent because we don't have to really look into things and think for ourselves. We just go to the doctor and they tell us what to do and we can just continue doing the unintelligent things that led to whatever scenario. I'm talking about physically. The psychological thing, it's a lot more complicated than just one's own body. It's relational, there's dynamics in families and society and trauma and so many things. But even if we didn't have those meds, maybe we'd really have to look at ourselves as a humanity and stop doing these things to each other that lead to these supposed personal psychological problems. There's no such thing as a personal psychological problem. It can manifest in a person, but it's not something that manifests in isolation. It's in the design of how we are as humanity right now. And I only bring that up because I was talking about not wanting to take any medications. I'm not gonna go on and on about that stuff. It's really boring to me. And meds make the nervous system weak, so we can't face anything. And it's not that we can't face it, it's actually something more than that that I'm seeing. The nervous system doesn't attract those situations that it would attract if the nervous system was strong and clear, that it would be able to face from a position of strength and always moving through life from a position of strength. Thus, the nervous system and what one can move towards actually improves and increases over time. 
So if I'm on a med, I'm kind of stuck in the same level of reality and I'm never gonna get out. But if my nervous system is clear and strong and I face something, not face as in some big thing, but just be with life in the moment and I'm able to be strong through that, then the next situation makes one stronger and stronger and stronger instead of actually making the nervous system weaker and weaker over time. So instead of having this allostatic load process, it's actually increasing the capacity of the nervous system over time. And I'm feeling like that can only happen when the nervous system is clear. Because one then faces things clearly and can see what's happening and, and act in a meaningful and relevant way. So with the medications mediating perceptions, we're not actually meeting what would be made salient to a clear nervous system in the exact same situation. But unfortunately, the exact same situation is never gonna repeat, but as soon as one is clear, one can actually move out of that energy level of just sort of moving to avoid trauma. And that's sort of what happens when one is in so-called recovery and maybe has a wellness recovery action plan most of the plan is actually to avoid triggers and to keep oneself calm and keep oneself safe and and do daily maintenance and early warning signs and things are breaking down and it's all about watch out for the breakdown but i'm feeling like when we're on these chemicals that weaken our nervous system we're always going to be watching out for the breakdown and i wonder if when it's time to be clear when it's time to go from pure to pure we actually just get stronger over time and then the need to look for triggers and warning signs just drops away. Imagine being in the state of so-called mania and instead of getting stronger and then falling apart and floundering, imagine if we just got stronger and stronger and stronger. What would that look like? And to me that looks like unfolding one's superhumanity. And that's why it would be important actually before ever deciding to taper, to actually really harvest one's so-called mania or magic or superhumanity, to look for those hints of how to design one's life to move into superhumanity, not avoid the scary stuff and avoid trauma, but just by naturally moving in the field of what one's gifts are, one might be able to just move in strength and then if there are any things that are somewhat traumatic, they will feel way less traumatic because one is moving mainly in strength and I'm talking about this because I've had the sense of this since I've felt more clear and with the support of the micronutrients I think and it reminds me of the book power versus force by dr. David Hawkins and how he would use muscle testing to test for truth or falsehood so if you ask yourself a question and you do this muscle test where you press on someone's arm or something, if it's false or requires some kind of force, then the nervous system, the human nervous system will actually go weak. And if it has power or is over the level of 200 on the calibrated scale of consciousness, it makes the nervous system go strong. So what I'm feeling is that being on meds actually prevents the nervous system from going strong. So when one's nervous system isn't moving as a resonator of strength and able to draw strength from whatever situations and and life events they move through. 
So those meds keep us in a lower state of consciousness by sort of toxifying our nervous system. And maybe it's blocking some of the scary stuff that we're trying to move through to get to that place of strength. But if we can move through that scary stuff and get to a place of strength with a clear nervous system, perhaps we can just continue to move up the scale of consciousness from a position of strength, of power, of love, above the line of 200 on the scale of consciousness. And it's really nice to get these free ocean waves, sound waves and actual waves in the background. And I'm talking a bit louder, realizing that might be hard to hear. Today is a day for celebration. It's officially four weeks off medications for me. And that marks the longest I've been off psych meds since I was labeled over six years ago. I was given my official label on May 15th, 2011, and it's July 1st, 2017. So that's six years and a month and a half. So this is the longest I've been off meds and my nervous system feels really good. It feels clear, it feels strong, and each day that goes by I feel stronger, like this was definitely the right decision. And I've learned a lot, and I've been really clear and writing down a lot of insights, but at the same time I don't feel rushed to get to them or talk to them, as I have about three weeks left in California, so I want to absorb all the California goodness before I go, and also do a few things to prepare for going home, like buy some new clothes, some new used clothes, and send some of my belongings back through the mail, and just be organized, and also when I pack, I want to have just one backpack that I can use for several days if I'm sort of bouncing around from place to place when I first get home. So if I'm organized in that way, it'll be a smoother transition. And I also got organized in my iCal. I had a bunch of events at the time when I get back, so around the end of July. So I sort of consolidated those, and then I'll probably go through and organize them into different categories, like things I need to do for myself personally, things I want to do for business, things I want to do possibly getting involved at the clubhouse, things I might want to buy. So just sort of designing my life that way and also keeping in mind the things that I can actually affect, the things that I can actually have a direct influence on. So I talk about a lot of stuff with myself, and me talking to myself is more about this dialogical relationship I have with myself and keeping dialogue going. And if the whole world was designed in a dialogical way, I wouldn't necessarily have to sit here and talk to myself. But I really see it as nourishment for this other dimension of the brain that seems to just want to be engaged with other energies and other types of conversation and giving voice to different things and talking about different things, making up words. So it's really just playing with myself. And I'm seeing that that will likely cause ripples outward because I've talked to myself in all the ways that I want to. It's like an outward manifestation of inner self-talk 
and not that everything I talk about is going to come true or I'm ever going to share with people in a conversation, but it definitely gets my nervous system primed for that to be possible. So when I do interact with people, it's in a way that's closer to how I would interact with myself, for myself, by myself. So I'm wondering how that will carry forward into going back home where everyone that I know, who knows me as they knew me, will they see me as different? Will they still project the same images on me? And can I sort of be immune to those and just uphold how I've been and what I've moved towards? And I, I really don't know. So talking to myself is good to continue moving forward on nearly a daily basis just to keep it going in the brain. But I also want to talk about some of my business ideas and also that superhuman talk and some of the insights I've written down. So it's just, again, really priming my nervous system. It's like coaching myself. And I have a lot of ideas and way too many that I could ever carry out on my own, but I still just like to talk about them all because it's not about being able to carry out everything. Talking isn't about, we only talk about things that we can actually manage to carry out in our lifetime. I actually read a great quote recently and it said something like, if your life's work can be accomplished in your lifetime, you're not thinking big enough. So that was kind of cool and I can't remember who the quote was by, but it was something like that. So a lot of the stuff I'm talking about is too much for me to accomplish by myself in my own lifetime, but maybe if I'm able to relate with people in a certain way, certain things might be able to unfold for sure. I don't know, but at the same time, I only have power within myself and within the ways that I relate with others. One thing I've noticed lately is I'm not looking at the camera as much. I'm looking here and it makes it look like I'm read reading off the computer or something, but I'm really not. I just sort of stare at it. I don't know why. So I will attempt to look more at the camera. And the first time I went into map consciousness, I was full of energy and I wanted to share that. And I didn't really relate as much to myself as just trying to share it with other people. But when one directs that energy towards self-understanding first, then as one moves through reality, some of that might be shared, but not by actually trying to share it. And that might be some of the difference when we first get that energy. We want to share, we want to give, we want to great we want to be playful and all this but we really haven't established that energy moving through ourselves and then just being shared by virtue of that understanding when there's no understanding when there's energy without understanding it can be quite chaotic so putting a lot of that towards understanding then the nervous system can be ready for life as it unfolds and happy Canada Day to everyone back home. I'll be home in less than a month. My celebration of four weeks off meds to me is way more exciting than Canada Day. And I got a baggie today and I'm probably going to put a quarter in it and then a little note, like a special message or something, and then put it in the beach so one of those little sand checker people will find it and then look at the message and then if they follow the message 
then maybe it will be some kind of magical journey. So I think that's kind of fun to just invite some magic in. And I even thought of a new business name today. It could be Manifesting Magic. But the trouble is that could be associated with like magic tricks or something and people looking for magicians. So it's difficult to find something that is sort of an interesting play on words, but is at the same time very clear. And I thought of changing the word peer when I was saying, oh, we're peer instead of peers to clear. But I don't know. I kind of like peer. We'll see. And I'm really just feeling like supporting people in this niche of people who would like to live their life without psychiatric meds because there's not enough support for that there's no celebration for that there's no coming off party there's coming out parties and all that now but there's no coming off coming off meds party so there's a bunch of stuff i would like to start around that but of course i need to be far enough in my own strength in that to be comfortable sharing that and I'll probably connect with the woman who told me about the Hardy Nutritionals product and just start sharing and I'm wondering how I will do that but I won't go into that now so four weeks I think says that we can be off meds and be clear and of course it takes work and it takes effort and support but it is possible and other people have definitely done it too. And perhaps we need to support each other more in that. And tonight will be the first night that I take one quarter of a Benadryl. So I'm still taking that. I have four more nights at one quarter. And then after that, it'll be the first night that I fall asleep without any kind of sleep helpers. So yeah, all this talk with myself will prime conversations when I go home. And I've changed the way I see the world because I see I can live without meds. And I even thought of that it might be good to actually talk to myself about how I might want to talk to people about this and break the news. So what would I want to say to people and when and how? And do I have to be careful because if I just go around mental health circles saying, oh, I'm off meds, people might not understand that it is a process that needs to be gone about carefully. And I wonder if a new game that we can create as peers is looking for the magic and not the tragic. And a lot of what is designed into so-called recovery is looking for triggers and watching out for this and being aware of that. And that's a really important phase. But I'm wondering if we can transcend that instead of the game of looking out for the tragic, for the trauma, for the triggers. Can we look out for the magic? And I feel that's easier once we become clear. Can we make magic salient and not the tragic trauma and triggers? Actually, I thought of a new word, majiggers, or magic-iggers, I don't know. But majiggers are magic triggers, because the word trigger is kind of triggering in itself. But to make kind of a fun word, majiggers, it's a positive trigger. It's 
something that invokes us and invites us to consider the mystery and the wonder of life and the magic of life. So I kind of like the word majiggers and I'll perhaps talk about it again to remind myself. Or maybe I'll create a different word. And I came across a bit in a Krishnamurti bulletin, number 82, 2008, and it's on page 23. And it really reminds me about a lot of the stuff I've been talking about with myself. He says, There is no exclusiveness in awareness. Attention is not exclusive. If I exclude, there is effort. And effort leads to distortion. Awareness is not effort. When you go out for a walk, what happens? You are receiving all the impressions about birds, people, cars, etc. If you are alert and you are not immersed in a problem, you can give your attention to any one of these things and yet be receptive to the other impressions also. The mind, if not drugged by a problem, is receiving impressions. In that state of receptivity, one object out of the many can be looked at more closely. If I have a problem and concentrate on it through effort, it is exclusive. Through exclusion, I cannot understand it. Through exclusion, I miss something which may be helpful to understanding it. I must come to the problem without a sense of exclusion, which means I must be open all round to any impression with regard to that problem, to every movement of thought. When I examine any one part, I'm not excluding anything else, but I am sensitive to everything that may arise. For instance, I must listen to you and at the same time be alert to listen to what anyone else says and then to find out the truth in everything that's said. To be aware is to be open, therefore awareness is not a practice. It is not a habit. The moment I create a habit, it is exclusion. To be aware of my contradiction is not to have a screen between me and my contradiction, the screen of conclusion or an answer. If I want to understand you, when I am aware of the screen, the screen is removed. Take any psychological problem. You always quote and get the screen between you and the problem. If the screen is removed, you see the problem clearly. Individual transformation brings about immediate revolution in the world in which we live. Individual revolution is of the highest importance and not mass revolution. The mass is only an invention of the others. It does not exist. Only when there is a passive alertness, there is openness. A primary factor that brings about revolution is love. Love is not sentiment, not emotion. It is sufficient if you are aware even momentarily. When you are aware, you see great wisdom. Then there is an interval, and in that interval, there is relaxation, and it will be revealing. So he talks about a screen in between. I talk about a clear mind screen, which means there's nothing in the way of the screen. There's no screen in the way of a screen. And I really feel like map consciousness is this energy of individual revolution without referring to this so-called mass, this so-called society that is nowhere. But if we're able to have this individual revolution that Krishnamurti talks about, the world would change. And so I've just had some hints lately that it's important to to direct that energy towards individual revolution or something. That Veronica 
woman emailed me back and was saying that same thing that just by focusing on ourselves that sort of changes the world because we can't really help other people and that excerpt was from a talk that Krishnamurti gave in Madras on the 13th of April in 1948 the other day I wrote some stuff down and I just want to go into it briefly and I thought it was rather interesting. I was writing down something about who do we want to have to keep or to add to our epigesturetic matrix or makeup. So this is expanding on how relationships partly determine how our life unfolds. Actually it does in a big way. So who do we want to have in our epigesturetic matrix? Who is going to see our gestures? Who's going to be around us? Who are we going to be interacting with? And this is really important for people, I feel, that go into map consciousness because we become more relational. We, we are very sensitive to the energies being directed towards us in relationships and usually after a while of sharing in so-called mania, we become very sensitive to the energies being directed towards us and it eventually warps that energy and makes us crumble back into the ego mode of consciousness and it's sort of a fractured and traumatized ego mode so then it requires supposedly some kind of medication to, to make someone better. So this epigesturetic matrix is like our epi-ego makeup. So we have this ego makeup apparently, and I'm not saying that that would disappear entirely, but we also have this makeup that is beyond our own personal ego, and those are the factors that are influencing us when we transition from so-called mania to say so-called depression or psychosis or something. But when we can understand this, we can be more cautious about understanding who is in our epi-ego, epi-gesturetic matrix. For example, if there's a psychiatrist sitting in front of me, I have to be aware of the facade and the persona and the role they're playing and what that role might put into my life as a result of them being in my vicinity part of my epigesturetic makeup. So these are influences from beyond the ego. These are other people's ego structures attempting to move into our energy field and warp our ego back. But when we are aware of these epi-ego gesturetics or interactions, then we can actually stay stronger and stand our ground, really. Stand our ground when necessary, move away when necessary, have a conversation or a dialogue when appropriate. I'll share more in the next video. I don't want to make it too long because I don't know when I'm going to get to edit this. And if it goes in the cloud when it's too long, it's difficult to get out. So in the last video, I was just talking about one's epigesturetic matrix or makeup, which is about the relationships we have in our life. And we can have relationships in our life that will actually improve our epigesturetic matrix or perhaps our relational mind. 
So what can happen when a person is labeled with a so-called mental illness is now they have been demoted to having interactions in their life that are more clinical, are more about what is wrong with you, whether it's a psychiatrist or a nurse or a doctor or a clinician or some kind of worker of some kind. It's all these people trying to fix us and that has a place for sure, but by improving our epigesteretic matrix or being aware of it, we can actually use that energy to help epigesture us out of certain scenarios or maybe patterns or behaviors that we no longer want to participate in, but sometimes have to, it seems for now, by virtue of being labeled. So if I get labeled, I might think, I have to go to my psychiatrist every month, which is a behavior of going to that building, waiting there for however long it takes to see somebody, going into this little contained office, sitting in this very impersonal and and sort of demoralizing posture and answering very demoralizing questions as well and oppressive questions. So one can actually orient one's energy to be able to withstand doing that, especially if one knows one's just sort of smiling and nodding and playing the role for now, but that's not really how one feels about oneself. But it's not really the place to try and convince that particular person, like a psychiatrist, otherwise. The convincing happens in different parts of the epigesturetic matrix of oneself than the clinical part that is sort of there in the beginning, at least for now. So one can improve one's epigesturetic matrix by talking to oneself in self-dialogue and, and translating the energies into a context that one would want to live in because one has created it for oneself, not the context created through the questions one has to answer when one goes to the psychiatrist's office. What kind of energy does one take with oneself the rest of the month after that? And this reminds me a bit of how I read once that we are the sum total of the people we spend the most time with. So if we spend the most time with the TV, the psychiatrist, the clinician, the people at the psych ward, if we get put in there, people at the mental health center, we're definitely going to be stuck in that game, playing that role for a long period of time. So what are some creative ways to improve one's epigesturetic matrix? And I've found that self-dialogue has really helped me because it's just the epigestures of relating to myself in a way that I would want. If I wanted to say all this stuff to a psychiatrist, they wouldn't have time to listen. But I can listen to myself and by giving voice to things that I wouldn't otherwise, it's, I feel, strengthening my nervous system. If the sound of our own voice in our head and our thoughts can weaken our nervous system, then saying empowering things that matter to oneself out loud can strengthen it for sure. So if we have a psychiatrist and a clinician and, and a mental health worker as our closest people, then that's the role we're going to play. That's our epigesturetic matrix. And those we have a relationship become a part of us in a way. They influence our epigesteretics, they influence our gestures, they influence 
how we will be towards ourselves if we feel like there's something really wrong with us then we're not really going to necessarily treat ourselves very well so self-dialogue can be a way to retreat with oneself and relate in a way that one would want to even though maybe the rest of life is designed in a way to reinforce a life that one would not want so when we relate we share a mind in a way other people's minds and words and gestures towards us affect whether we move towards them or retreat away from them or do what they say or recommend or set goals with them that they might actually influence or even how the mental health system is set up. It's set up to support very few dimensions of life like work, volunteer, some recreation and things but it's still very limited compared to what is out there as part of being human. So it's still contrived. And if one would go back and harvest one's mania, if that is applicable, one might realize that when you look at recovery, it has nothing to do with that original energy. So I feel that it's important to also acknowledge that original energy. And a lot of us get in touch with a lot of words, yet... Who is there to talk to about it or dialogue with to make some sort of sense of this new language orientation? Recovery is about orienting us back to society. And there's a great quote by J. Krishnamurti saying, It's no measure of health to adjust oneself to a profoundly sick society. So to me, the measures of recovery aren't necessarily measures of health. So be careful who we share minds with. We're sharing the mind of psychiatry in the mental health paradigm because we're told that's what we should believe. I feel like the epi-ego is the we-go. It is acknowledging that relational dimension and I feel like when we go through map consciousness a lot of us get in touch with the we-go and the we-go warps us because we're not strong in our own context because this energy sort of gave us a seed of a new way of understanding and relating to ourselves in the world, yet we don't understand it. So we're actually very vulnerable. It's sort of like being in a childlike state in many ways. So we're very, we're very susceptible to the impressions of others again. So suspending the ego in map consciousness, that energy comes through and creates fun stuff for a while, but then after a while, it is again very susceptible to the whole gravity of the whole world around us. It's hard to avoid that. The gravity of all those words and that's why I feel it's important to create words for oneself and I feel that's probably why when one goes into map consciousness a lot of times we connect with a lot of words and we're saying a lot of things and making a lot of things, making up words, just talking whatever in the moment, talking to people and some of it makes sense, some of it doesn't, but it's sort of a way to drown out the words of the world. We're too busy making our own words and our own perceptions to really bother with the world. And I feel we can still do that when we're not in that high energy state. And that's a way to channel the energy that might be coming through, but we don't really notice when we can really channel it in a way that that energy would want. So if I go back to harvesting my mania, I would write down perceptions, I would 
record audio of me talking about something, and I probably have some of those somewhere. And I would talk, and I'd make up words, and I'd make plays on words, and I'd make rhymes and poetry. So if I can just have my own words going, doesn't matter how, like it doesn't have to be poetry, it doesn't have to be whatever. I've been doing self-dialogue as a way to create my own words for myself, to myself, to sort of bathe in my own word creation and context creation to create almost an energy field of immunity to these other things that would be impressing on me, which are there all the time. It's difficult to escape that, but one can actually create one's own language energy bubble. And I've written some stuff about language later on, and it's something to do with quantum linguistics, or I don't know, it's almost like changing one's quantum field by speaking possibilities. Not to make them all possible, just to live in the field of possibilities and not have one's possibilities collapsed by the memes of the world, especially related to mental health, that would change one's possibilities into what the mental health system says is possible, which is very limited. So what I've been talking about in a way is epi-ego-gesturetics or epi-we-go-gesturetics. It's similar to epi-gesturetics, but it's also a bit different because epigesturetics is more if I do a kind act that's sort of reinforced in my neurology and my brain and and the the wego gesturetics or the epi wego gesturetics is being aware of other people's gestures in relationship to them that might actually warp our gestures so epigesturetics is sort of our actions which we might have done a lot of that in so-called mania but then the epi-ego-gesturatics or we-go-gesturatics is when people start sort of moving towards us to warp our path and being aware of that and who's in front of us and who we want around us. And, and I feel like the more we're able to make our own words and context as we move through life, more appropriate people will be drawn towards us. If I just sort of am passive and just thinking the memes of mental health and trying to manage and recover and all that, I'm going to be moving in that field of recovery and people helping me manage. But if I can create context away from that, I'll move through life in a different way and attract different interactions and have different epi-wego gesturetics. So this, in a way, creates a different epi-ego. So it's one thing to have this ego that we sort of identify with, but by creating all this context that we may or may not ever use, we won't even have to try to use it. It will just arise when necessary. We have this sort of epi-ego structure of so much context to draw upon beyond just the memories that have been circulating in our head that change only ever so slightly as we move through the experience of our life. But when we're able to harvest insights and perceptions from the quantum field, basically, and give voice to that, we've now created this sort of epi-ego structure of very subtle perceptions as opposed to these gross manifestations of thoughts sort of repeating and creating scar tissue in our own brain. 
So then if we're only doing that, as we move through life, we're, we're relating based on our own scar tissue in our brain, and we're just traumatized. And so we're moving in this field of trauma. So by sort of participating in our own self-dialogue, self-embodiment, self-creation, through this sort of drama, this play, we can move from moving in a field of trauma to moving in a field of our own drama, of our own making, and not like drama as in bad, but just being dramatic and emphatic that this context is important to oneself. And we got in touch with it in our first experience in map consciousness. So it's important to unfold that as as a protective barrier in a way. But beyond being a cr protective barrier, it's actually a creative area. So I'm creating this for myself. And as I move through life, that might just pass on to people somewhat. And the other, the opposite of that is just going about life through the gravity of the trajectory of being labeled with a mental illness. And, and I know what that leads to, and I don't want any part of that. So epi-ego gesturetics, or epi-wego gesturetics, is actually acknowledging the dance, the interaction. As one person moves left, then we move right. So how other people move, moves us. But if we're so busy, in a way, manifesting epi-gesturetically, creatively, not mechanically, but creatively, by perceiving the moment, and having that love in our heart, then... There might not even be any room for people to affect us with their influence on our epigesturetic matrix. So it's not so much about the epi-ego gesturetics, but improving the energy of one's epigesturetic matrix to, to create the right interactions with people. So after talking to myself all this time, I'm... I'm pretty much 100% sure that my interactions are going to be different with people and there'll be less that I'll really want to partake of. So there'll be some period of time moving in a field of talking with people and then perhaps I just move away. And there's actually something I read that Krishnamurti said in that same bulletin I mentioned in the last video that I'll talk about a little bit. And I thought of another word for epigesturetics. It's epi-egonomics. So it's the energetics of our relationship exchanges. So we think of exchanging money as economics and things, but there's an egonomics. And can we use these egonomics to actually improve our epigesturetic matrix? So I've created all this context with myself, for myself, by myself. That improves my epigesturetic matrix. It's going to change what I say to people. It's going to change what I say when people say something to me. It's going to change how I act. It's going to change how I move. But then can I also be aware of this epi-egonomic energetic exchange phenomenon? And that's just part of the epigesturetic matrix improvement. But it's just another way to sort of look at it and... And one can have a sense of, wow, that interaction was powerful based on the context that I've created for myself. And it's not about trying to remember it. It's just about creating that context so the right bit arises in the moment. 
whatever that is, there's a lot more selection of perceptions that can arise in the moment in having a conversation with someone. And perhaps one day that'll be irrelevant too because we'll just talk about what's really there in the moment. But this is sort of a buffer from my past context. So when past context comes towards me through past people and past things and situations, I have a new thing to say about it through my own unfolding with myself. And that's going to change what they say back. That's going to change everything. So when our egos scramble in map consciousness to make room for this epi-egonomics, this exchange of energy that's different and epigesturetics, most of the time we fall into the epigesturetic matrix of the mental health system because we're relating in a different way. We're relating to ourselves and others in different ways and we don't understand it and it eventually gets warped and mixed in with just the plain old ego structure and really psychiatry is in the business of keeping the me structure intact and it's not seeing that there could be something beyond that that the me structure can still be involved in but but it's a more integrated level of being acknowledging these relationship dynamics and these epi-egonomics and epigesturetics Instead of thinking we're just this isolated billiard ball bonking into things, it doesn't work that way. And the mental health system becomes a poor excuse for some form of relationship with people. And I'm not saying that in a bad way, I'm just saying it as a fact how a lot of us end up with our main interaction just with psychiatrists or clinicians. And if we're lucky, we we are able to be social with some of our peers in the clubhouse system or something. And I think that's actually really awesome. And I love all those people, but I just am not loving how that context really limits people by what they tell people to believe about themselves. We need a new matrix of memes of different understanding to make a new epi we goic we go I see, which is the inertia of light. There's a language of the inertia of light, so we can provide inertia for each other by the light of this consciousness. And by sharing this type of consciousness, it will provide some epigesturetics and epi-egonomics, actually, because it's just a word. And the gesture might be just having the context that one's built for oneself to actually just speak it, and that will invite it from other people naturally. So that's epi-wegonomics. And the light in our hearts goes live and manifests through our eyes. So to go with all this, I just want to read another bit from a discussion by Krishnamurti in 1948, April 11th in Madras. And I'll just read it quickly. As these discussions will be for about three weeks, I would like, if I may, to go to the root of the problem direct and not beat about the bush. To deal with the problem directly, we must take a general view of world affairs. Then we can see the deterioration of world's condition. Obviously, a social revolution, the revolution in the values of society cannot take place. When we attempt to change this society, 
such a change will only be a modified continuity. So as long as we are looking to a social structure to be changed, such a change will not be a revolution. Society is always static. Only in the individual can there be a radical revolution. So this really reminds me of the radical revolution that happens with somebody who goes in map consciousness. To continue with what Krishnamurti said, society is always static. The individual only is creative and not society. When the individual thinks in terms of change, change being only modified continuity, whatever the individual creates will be static. The moment an act is complete, it's static. If the relationship between two individuals be mere static adjustment, it produces a society which is static. If the relationship is revolutionary and based on a different sense of values, then the individual will be creative. Therefore, continuous revolution is in relationship with people, and one has to start with oneself, the individual, and not with society. So that's why I feel like self-dialogue could be really important for, for creating the context of a sense of a different sense of values. An individual alone can be in a continuous state of revolution, but not society. Obviously, society is crumbling and deteriorating rapidly. Here we are talking about change, etc. But we are not creative. We are not the architects designing a structure away from all of this. To do this, we must examine the causes of the present chaos. We must be the architect, the contractor, for raising a new structure. To do this, we must have complete transformation now. Transformation in values, in outlook, and in the whole being. I have seen this happening. Why are you not transformed? So I feel like self-dialogue is, is being an architect and a contractor and a constructor of this other way of being and getting in connection with different values. And I did talk at some point about how map consciousness is a different value system. It's perhaps a value system of figuring things out for oneself. Love is the only thing that transforms. We cannot persuade Truman and other big politicians to do what we think is correct. But we, though we are a small people, can start somewhere else, i.e. with ourselves. The simple way is for me to go my way. I will transform myself. So far, I have also been contributing to the confusion and the chaos in the world. Now I will withdraw. I am not face to face with myself. I do not know what the result of my facing myself is going to be. There are so many different masks. One day I'm greedy, another day I'm generous and charitable. Then I want to be a viceroy, etc. Again, the higher self is also an invention. Which is the me to which I have to be honest? I'm broken up into different parts. Unless I am neurotic, I cannot say definitely I am this. There are many contradictions in me. Because there is no affection wherever we are, which means love, there is no immediate transformation. It is the element which is missing in all of us. Therefore, there is no real communication between us, but only verbal. We are on the edge of things and not in the center. When there is love, there is no sentiments and no emotions. So, to me, a lot of that speaks to what I've been talking about with myself, so I just wanted to share and... It's just something that's pointing to considering really not trying to do too much when I go back home, but just continuing the self-dialogue and then seeing what 
unfolds with other people back in my home context. And perhaps it's a little scary to feel like it might be really different because I've been away and then I come back, things have really changed for me, but the way people see me since I left hasn't really changed. So that's what I'm talking about with being strong in my home context and not allow other people's words or or epigestures to affect my epigesturetic matrix. So we'll see. That's all for today. I have so much more to talk about in the next couple weeks. As long as I talk about the superhuman stuff and the business stuff and touch on some other points, I'll be happy making videos perhaps every other day. My car is on the charger right now, so I'm spending some of the day just moseying around aimlessly and I spent time editing the two videos I made yesterday and it took a really long time to edit because I had all these downloads of extrapolations that I was writing in my phone and I will show you some of them though I'm not sure when I'll actually get to talking about them but here some of them are. So that was a lot, and then I actually went to a kombucha bar and was charging my phone, and I went through all the notes I've written in my notebook that I haven't yet put in my computer, and I re-extrapolated those. So now I have tons of notes added to the notes I already had. but it seemed like a good way to unfold them more before talking about them and see how they tie together. So I think it was a good thing actually. I think a second extrapolation before actually talking about them would be good. So I might do that with the computer notes as well, but maybe I don't have to because some of them I just typed in from my notes. So it's like a second extrapolation, which I already talked about. But some of them I just type right into my phone and then add them to the long queue of insights to talk about. And yesterday I went to Santa Monica and I was reintroduced to the reality of traffic. And I spent probably an hour driving around looking for somewhere to charge the electric car. So I had a nice juice and then I drove for an hour, parked the car, walked to the pier really quickly and then just walked back to the car and drove back. It was kind of a crazy day, but it was fun.
and I dropped an altruism quarter in in Santa Monica and maybe I'll call it qualtruism because it's like a quantum altruism there's like this quantum intention in it I feel there's an intentionality in the dropped quarter who knows and I put another quarter on the ground this morning in the park and I'm still thinking of a way to make a fun game out of a quarter in a baggie in the sand. And last night was the first night I took just one quarter of a Benadryl along with the six amino acid caps to fall asleep and I fell asleep just fine, I was so tired. But I did have a very vivid dream related to past situations and I woke up feeling kind of like low and like ugh. But then just getting out and editing video and extrapolating and going back into creative mode got rid of that pretty quickly. So it wasn't just about going out and doing something to get rid of that state but actually going out and, and still moving with the self-inquiry process and unfolding and extrapolating. And then there's really no room for that other stuff to come in. So I think self-dialogue could be somewhat protective against those lower states, even if they're there, when the brain is really in this mode of being able to move out of that quickly into this self-dialogue, inquiry, and creation mode, it just naturally falls away without having to try to do something to get rid of it. So you know your perception is working when you're wandering around aimlessly in a town and don't even know why you're going the way you are. And then you stop and look and there's a set of keys on the ledge of a windowsill. And you actually know who those keys belong to. So that happened yesterday and I didn't know why I walked the way I did and I even wondered, why did I go this way? I was just over here or something, something. Actually, I was wandering around dropping altruism quarters and I just discovered the voiceover feature in iMovie. And then that peripheral perception that I talk about just sort of picked it out. But now if I'm focusing on efficiency or if I'm focusing on to-do or goals or desires or what I want, I'm going to walk right by that. It was really interesting. And I had just put another altruism quarter on the ground so it was kind of because I was wandering and placing an altruism quarter that I was able to find something that somebody had misplaced and maybe didn't even know that they had misplaced it yet so that was kind of cool and this morning I woke up and I was kind of missing my family and it made me remember that before I left for California, I remember just wanting to really be able to come back home and be stronger for my nieces and be a better person to have a really positive impact on them if I can. And I think that that really did happen and I'm hoping that I can just bring some of the energy that I've absorbed here by being in nature and just having time to myself and ending up coming off psych meds also to just really 
be able to be a little bit different when I go back. Last time I spent time with my nieces was actually because I was struggling. So I was staying with my family and I was drugging myself up on Seroquel and my niece would come in the room and say, okay, if you need anything, just let me know. I can help you. I'll get it for you. And then she'd leave the room and then she'd come back and say, you're not asking for anything. I, what, I don't know what to do. And she was just being really cute and sweet, but I was just like, ugh. And that's not really being super anti. That's being super drugged up on psychiatric meds. So I'm just really hoping that when I go home, I can be stronger for them because when I was first in the state and then hospitalized, I remember before I was ever hospitalized saying, I have to stand up for my niece. And I literally stood up feeling like I was dying. I stood straight up and I thought I actually yelled out, I stand up for my niece. But I didn't, I just sort of looked around and then went to the washroom, but yeah. And then I was talking to somebody and saying that I miss my nieces. And then she was saying that she moved from California to New York just to be around her nieces and nephews. And she said she never regretted that. And just to watch them grow and, and to love them is such a special relationship to have. So... Yeah, I just was thinking about that. And yesterday I actually discovered a wearable device called Muse. And a friend of mine was talking to a naturopath that I see. And the naturopath recommended the device because it's actually an EEG headband that connects to an app that can help people learn to meditate because it analyzes the brain waves and then can tell if one is sort of in a meditative state or is not. So I'm just wondering what the limitations of that are. And I looked it up on YouTube and there's a guy named Cody Rall and he's an MD and he has a YouTube channel called Tech for Psych. So he has some videos on these different EEG devices. And so I emailed him to find out what is the best one. Not necessarily just for meditation, not just for relaxing and then birds are calling nicely to give biofeedback about whether the brain is in the meditative state or not, but actually if there's any of the devices that can show the brain, like show visually, show me that my brain is actually in a hyper creative state or a hyper insightful state or a flow state or whatever. Like, what is my brain doing when I'm having these insights and writing things down? Is it something different than what other brains do when it's just thinking and ruminating and whatever? So I'm just wondering what the limitations are of that. And it seems like this one doctor guy has looked into this stuff quite a bit because there's a few different devices out there. So I sent an email asking about which would be the best for me if I'm wanting to look into things like creativity. So if the devices are only for focus and concentration and meditation, that's interesting, but I don't actually ever focus or concentrate because that would actually narrow perception. And I think that's part of what happens in map consciousness is we stop focusing and we stop concentrating. 
So then we actually have access to a lot more information because we're not narrowing it down with our thoughts. And then at first this is really overwhelming and it's hard to understand because we don't know where is all this information coming from because it's not just coming from our thoughts, it's coming from another source as well because we can see things and, and, and think new things that we didn't actually think of ourselves. They arose in our mind through just looking around and perceiving and and it takes a while to actually understand this way of relaxed perception that has nothing to do with the ego, which is our memory store and our stories and our knowledge and our experience. So it's a different orientation of perception that doesn't really have anything to do with focus and concentration. Focus and concentration are actually mental constructs created by a brain that can't see and can't perceive. A blind mind constricts itself in order to focus on what the past is telling it it needs to focus on. And I think I talked about with myself at one point about how I feel like when we can't focus and we can't concentrate, it's actually that the brain is looking for new meaning. So we might be telling ourselves, okay, focus, read this, focus, this is important. But then our mind wanders and our eyes wander and we can't focus. Really the brain's saying, don't focus on that. Keep looking for something else. And it's not even that, it's more so we can't even see. So part of it is just looking around blindly, like groping for something to see because we can't see because we're blinded by all our thoughts. And it's hard to read and concentrate because we're blinded by all our thoughts. So even if it was something interesting and meaningful, it's still difficult to have that information get through the mind screen to the mind screen that is clouded with all this memory and old information, this noise, this past that's getting in the way of receiving the present moment. If we could receive the present moment, there would be no need to focus or concentrate because focusing and concentrating is actually just trying to exclude all the past intrusions. It's all the past intrusions that has nothing to do with the present moment. So if we were just in touch with that and perceiving that, there wouldn't be focusing. We wouldn't be excluding the past to try to focus on the present. The present's there and then the past is not. It's sort of this illusion of noise. It's like static. And it is static. It's just sort of always there getting in the way. So when that's not there, or when that only arises when completely necessary, it's just not there all the time, then there's no real reason to focus. What happens is our eyes and our perception is directed by the moment. It sort of catches our interest. So there's no focusing. There's just this this moment-to-moment catching of interest of something new and so that's more of what I'm interested in not sitting there trying to focus on something meaningless that has no meaning at all so yeah the eyes sort of wander and the brain wanders to find meaning because there's no meaning in all that stuff that we're trying to exclude by focusing but trying to exclude it by focusing doesn't really work because it's an effort and that effort moves us away from the moment as well because it shouldn't take effort to 
see the moment which is right in front of us. It's right there. It's actual. But we just can't see it through all of those illusions. So anyways, I think that training the brain to just concentrate and focus actually could just make us more susceptible to concentrating and focusing on the wrong stuff. So for example, if I'm going to school and I think I picked the wrong degree program, and in my mind and heart I can feel it, oh, I shouldn't have gone into this, I wanted to do this other program, but my parents said it wasn't smart enough, so I'm going to focus and I'm going to concentrate on that which I'm not even interested in learning. But all this past pressure and pressure of the momentum of my life and pressures people put on me is leading me to need to try to focus on this. Whereas if I was in the right field, then I wouldn't necessarily have to focus. It would just be enjoyable. So yeah, there's some differences there. So I feel like if we all learn to focus and concentrate, then when the next thing to focus and concentrate comes around, then we can focus and concentrate on it. But usually it's a magic trick of the media or marketing or whatever it's almost like learn to focus so when we have something to market to you that's going to trick your brain into thinking it's actually important then you can focus on it we're so interested in focused attention and we're not just observing choicelessly like krishnamurti points to so i see this device this brain EEG device as an opportunity to add a different dimension to my inquiry into understanding my brain and how it works. And I think that my brain will kind of like that. It'll find it fascinating. And I wonder what it might show. I have no idea. So I'm actually thinking that it could add another dimension into this business I might want to start. And what I did think of was how I could start the business and pretty much base it on just sharing this process of self-dialogue. So sort of like sharing information products, though I don't even want them to be products. But if I was to have a business and the plan was, oh, to help people, well, I have to find people to help. I have to actually imagine that I can help people. I have to have some kind of program. I have to have some kind of thing to sell or attract people but really I'm interested in being able to continue this process of self dialogue and self embodiment and maybe that'll take another year or two but sort of turning that into a business of say for example oh I'm creating a documentary I don't know if I am and I was even thinking about all the self dialogue with myself could almost just be my research notes to myself and it's not the actual thing that I want to create and share. I don't know. Because it has to move into something shareable. So creating a business with the hope of sharing something at some point would be almost like having like a research company or like a information products company but like it's just in the development phase. So the company can be started, but I'm not sure when there would be any kind of profit. And I don't even know if it is in terms of monetary profit. It's more creating some kind of social value and increasing social capital, at least for myself, and then seeing where that goes and then sharing it when it seems like the right time. 
just like people don't publish their research when they're not done yet. And to go along with that, it's not, oh, this is everything I've discovered for myself. Now I want to share that so people believe it. It's not that. It's sharing the process of self-discovery so one can discover things for themselves and then sharing maybe the ways that I did that. So sharing that I used Hardy Nutritionals to taper off psych meds, for example. And then when I get home and the new iWatch comes out, Apple Watch, getting that and monitoring my heart rate and also having it as a safety device. So if I do get into some scary states, I can call for help. And then maybe getting one of these EEG devices and seeing what kind of information that will give me about what my brain is doing when I'm actually doing this self-dialogue. Is it creating different brain waves? Is there a device that can tell me that when I'm writing down insights or having access to insights and I can say, oh, I feel like I'm having an insight. It's like a download from the universe. Is there something that kind of confirms that in the brain waves by having one of these EEG devices? And before, the only way to do that would be to be a part of a research lab that has an EEG machine that takes up half of a large room or something. But now with the technology, it's the time that we can really look into these things and discover them for ourselves. So I've got myself to the point where my mind and nervous system is, is clear from added pharmaceuticals and there's probably still some residues in there, but I'm just wondering what my brain is up to and if I can use that to, to discover something and we'll see. And maybe by doing that, Maybe there's a way to manage or get feedback on brain states by having one of these devices. So right now they have it so people can learn to meditate or focus or concentrate. But maybe there is a new algorithm that can be developed for people to monitor their brain when they have a label of bipolar like I do. And I'm not saying for sure that I don't have this bipolar brain state. But I'm saying it's more like an omnipolar brain state when one understands it and one can actually experience the richness of it, not just up, down, good, bad, but really it's rich when one starts to inquire into understanding it. Not just understanding it in terms of good and bad, reward and punishment. That's what we do. We have this very dualistic brain and then that prevents us from actually looking at it. If we call it good or bad, we've already put it into this category and we're not actually wondering about what that is and when we call something bad we've kind of stopped it from really telling us what that energy is all about so so that prevents understanding so what I'm saying is maybe by getting one of these EEG things and looking at it maybe there's a way to to help people to understand some of this inquiry into one's own brain with the aid of these types of devices. And that helps in a way with safety because we can have some kind of visualization to our brain state. So if there's a way to be like, okay, this is a danger brain state because I'm gonna spend all my money or something, maybe something can be developed along those lines. And I don't know, it's just interesting. So. Basically, 
I'm just wondering if this pure potential project is just me doing stuff for myself for a while still to really show that I can live off medications and move into the life of my dreams and creations, not just dream, but actually creating that and and what is it that I can utilize in terms of technology and different services available to to make that possible. So maybe I create information products along the way and not products in terms of I want to sell things, but a way to share that's understandable. Right now I have a lot of stuff, but I don't know how understandable it is. And I definitely would want to at least make an intro video saying be in dialogue with somebody or have some kind of something before really watching this because one might be like, okay, I'm going to do this because she did that. And then um, a few videos later, I'm like, well, I'm not doing that anymore. Or no, it's something different. Or I'm thinking about it a different way. It's not about watch this and do that. It's about create one's own understanding for oneself because that's the only thing that really matters. So I wonder if this EEG device would help me master this energy and this consciousness by having just a different level of feedback. Right now, though, I feel like I'm getting feedback from the universe and that I discover something through talking to myself and then something actually happens in reality. So I was watching a video on these devices and it's sort of like the device analyzes the brain waves and the, the phone does too. And so if one is in a meditative state, then the ocean will be moving nicely and the birds will be chirping nicely. But if one isn't, the ocean will be more rough and the birds will be like squawking or something. I don't know for sure, but... So what I'm trying to say is, if they've created an algorithm through this EEG on the head that feeds into the phone, and they've made it so the birds are nice if we're in that meditative state, well, our brainwaves are being emitted to all of reality. And all of reality is responding to it. So if we're in a certain state in our brain, the birds will be chirping nicely or they'll be squawking depending on what's going on. And this is happening in actuality, not just through the algorithm they've created on the phones. And I even thought it was a little scary because one day they'll pretty much have access to all our brainwaves and know who's in what brain state and blah, blah, blah. So the implications of this could be kind of scary, but really that just means we really have to get our brains in order quickly because they can almost put these things on people's heads and then all of a sudden certain brain states that are like pathological, people could just be like, oh, you went into a pathological brain state, we're going to drug you. And I think that a lot of the people that that still manage to walk around and appear normal will be the ones that get labeled and the ones that are getting labeled they'll discover that the brain is doing something new and creative and actually support people instead of thinking that they're going to be harmful in some way and i want it to be a for-profit company so i remember reading something about business where you have to have a reasonable expectation of profit and i'm like yeah i do have a reasonable expectation of Profit, spelled P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Oh, you didn't mean that kind of profit? Oh, well, I didn't know. So, not profit as in like extreme prophecy, but we can actually speak our lives and, and create our lives 
into manifestation through our own understanding. When the brain understands something, it can then actually see it. Just like if the brain is in a meditative state with that EEG device on, on and the phone, one can actually see it. But it works the same way if we're in that state, then we can actually see that in reality. So, and that can encounter our nervous system. Of all the billion bits available, when we understand something, then that can come to us in actuality. If we don't understand something, we can't see it. Just like how they give the example, a lot of people give the example of how when the ships came ashore and there was native indigenous people, they didn't even see the boats because they had no understanding or conceptual framework. They'd never seen it before. So they couldn't actually see the boats coming towards the shore at all. So if we've never seen something before, if we've never understood something before, we can't actually see it in actuality. So we need to unfold our own understanding in order to make that part of reality salient to our nervous system. We have to see it within ourselves first. But really we're just seeing all our repetitive thoughts from the past and what's been downloaded into our brain through the pressure of, of, our, of our upbringing. Can we bring up something else? Can we bring up our own understanding instead of just living as a reflex of our upbringing? So I'm wondering if this business model in a way is that my nervous system is really my business because I really don't want to be in the business of trying to tell other nervous systems what to do. It's not about doing, it's about understanding for oneself. And then the doing is that it is just right in front of us already. And then we can actually act on that. We can act on our own understanding and not on all these programs of pseudo-understanding that we've just absorbed by being told. When we tell ourselves something by actually discovering it, like, oh, I get it, oh, I understand, oh, I see how that works, then... It can actually encounter us, not we going out and looking for stuff. It's already right there. So I wonder about technology for safety and thriving, whether it's EEG for the brain or infrared saunas to detox off medications or nutritional technologies such as hearty nutritionals and really just keep going with doing that with myself. So it's kind of like... A research company and I actually feel like years and years ago I wanted to start a research company and I've never thought of it in terms of a research company when I've been thinking about starting something I've been thinking about starting something to try to support people but I don't know I think that partly makes my nervous system weak because it's the wrong orientation going out there thinking that I can actually help other people is not right it actually makes my nervous system go weak and I think that's part of why my nervous system really goes weak and and spirals into lower states of consciousness when I actually go out there and try to help people and participate in the field that's really trying to help people in a lot of the wrong ways. I think it's a more effective use of energy to to really research my own brain and nervous system and then at some point share some of that if if necessary. So I wonder if it is the pure potential project and just 
exploring my potential as a peer or a peer or whatever and and just having it sort of as researching my own nervous system and the research really just being social capital it has nothing to do with financial whatever I really just want to make it for gifts in kind or kindness or whatever I don't care I have a feeling that by sharing then whatever I share that resonates with certain people people will want to work together in some way and just being able to collaborate on things that I've been talking about would be so cool like I don't really need much else than that and I don't even know if it's a need it's just sort of happening because just being in California I've just had some of my clothes my my phone my computer and I feel like all I really need is just things that help me create this dialogue and if I start that company maybe I can purchase some research tools under that company and have a more sustainable way to keep going with this and then actually I was thinking that the company will actually possibly create itself so I might say I want to do this for the company that 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 but if I just start it off as I'm researching the potential of my nervous system after being on medications for six years and then coming off of them and then starting to explore wondering about what the brain is doing as having this type of consciousness omnipolar consciousness and seeing if one can create an alignment with what the brain was trying to do before it was ever labeled and medicated and what that leads to and then by sharing that research people might want to collaborate and participate in this type of research and somebody actually I read this article and I think I mentioned it they called it search not research because I'm not actually going back to old data I'm just discovering things for myself and the person in that article even said search is about sort of creating new questions for science not doing research on old questions so these are new questions that I create for myself through these self-inquiries so yeah I'm thinking that if it starts just as a research company and I'm just thinking of this now I didn't even have that written down then people might just want to do some collaboration and and then they can move towards this context with what resonates with them instead of me going out and saying okay this context is going to help you no I don't think so I feel like it's just one person's journey of inquiring into this so yeah I'm just seeing that if I keep going say thriving for like a year or something and then share the results of this research which is captured in an often daily dialogue then that could just naturally speak to certain nervous systems out there who might want to collaborate or or whatever I don't know because it again goes with I don't know if I can really contrive anything and even reaching out to that Veronica woman her response was very nice and she didn't even have to respond but 
people don't get excited about the context I've created for myself or the way that I communicate as I do. And that's totally cool. I completely understand that. So then, yeah, it's just one's own self-discovery and then whatever happens from that without really trying to do anything. And I picked up a book the other day by Jay Krishnamurti called Individual and Society. And I didn't know what would be inside, but I read like the first 20 pages and it just sort of blew me away how many times he used the word create or creative. And it's a word that I've been exploring recently and unfolding recently. And just this one part I'll read right now. It says, why is society crumbling, collapsing as it surely is? One of the fundamental reasons is that the individual you has ceased to be creative. And there were so many great parts, and I might read some little bits later, but it's just interesting how I don't really read very much at all. And actually, the bits that I do ever read, I probably extrapolate on video. So I don't think I ever read anything and then just not talk about it. And I don't actually talk about what I read very often, so what I'm trying to point to is I don't read that much. But when I do, it's often exactly what I was just talking about with myself. And I don't know if that's because there's, you know, a hundred parts of information and my brain just sort of gravitates and picks out the little parts that actually are just what I was talking about, or if it really is kind of me picking up a book and I'm not picking it up because it has the right title or something, but exactly what I was saying is in the book. So it actually makes me wonder about this whole process of reversal. When one does this whole voice reversal and information reversal, not getting the information from memory in the brain, but by really observing the world, when one really gets to understanding, it's actually a complete reversal. What one understands is then sort of created or the next gesture one makes is towards that which one just understood. And it's way different than what they talk about now with thoughts create reality or law of attraction because it's different to just think the old, the, it's different to just change one's thoughts a little bit by intention than actually perceiving something completely new that one couldn't have come up with if one even tried one's hardest to think about it. It just sort of arose in the mind and then one understands and then one makes a gesture to pick something up and read it and it's exactly what one just understood. So it's interesting. It's like how they say things are happening in the brain before we do it. So we make a conscious decision in the brain to do something and it shows up on some kind of EEG test or something and then we actually do it. But and then they find this interesting and they wonder about free will, but really, if we can still move beyond that to this understanding something first, and then it does it, the universe does it. We think of us doing something, but the universe does it. In order to move our arms through the air, the air has to move too, so you could even think the molecules of the error move away just as much as our arm moves. So which is it? And that's just an oversimplification, but what I'm trying to say is it happens in the brain first. So 
if it does happen in the brain first, if we can create our own understanding in our brain first by actually seeing in direct perception, not just repeating thoughts or changing the quality of our thoughts ever so slightly, that's going to change what happens next. It's going to change what we do next. It's going to change what the universe does through us next. It's going to change what the universe does to us and shows to us and presents to us next. So it's different than what they're saying, but it's using those discoveries and then combining that with one's own discoveries, one can really get in alignment with this, possibly. I don't know. And that's what I want to research. And it's something that I could never have even wondered about until I was really off these medications and clear and seeing clearly that what I'm seeing clearly is what's clearly happening. And I don't know, it'll keep changing and unfolding. And that's another thing I've talked about is as soon as I sort of feel like I figured out a certain algorithm, it changes. And it has to because that's how we keep learning. If we figured out the ultimate something, we would stop learning. And since human beings primarily are here to learn, we're always learning, which is different than the way we're educated, that would sort of defeat the purpose of the human game of learning. So even anything one's lear one learns just needs to be dropped. And that's actually something else Krishnamurti said in this book, and I was so blown away. This is the part that really was like, wow, I can't believe he's saying this. He says, to discuss intelligently, there must also be a quality not only of affection but hesitation. You know, unless you hesitate, you can't inquire. Inquiry means hesitating, finding out for yourself, discovering step by step. And when you do that, then you need not follow anybody. You need not ask for correction or for confirmation of your discovery. But all this demands a great deal of intelligence and sensitivity. By saying that, I hope I have not stopped you from asking questions. You know, this is like talking things over as two friends. We are neither asserting nor seeking to dominate each other, but each is talking easily, affably, in an atmosphere of friendly companionship trying to discover. And in that state of mind, we do discover, but I assure you, what we discover has very little importance. The important thing is to discover and after discovering, to keep going. It is detrimental to stay with what you have discovered, for then your mind is closed, finished. But if you die to what you have discovered, the moment you have discovered it, then you can flow like the stream, like a river that has an abundance of water. And he said that August 1st, 1965, in Sanin, the 10th public talk, and that was from The Collected Works, Volume 15, page 245. And it's also in Individual and Society. So I just really was amazed by that because I've talked about that a lot. How even if I feel like I have an insight that seems profound, just drop it. And saying that during this process is one thing, but it's difficult to do in the state of heightened states of consciousness where one feels like one just had the most profound insight. And then if we keep going with it, we get lost because we've actually attached the ego accumulative structure to this nonlinear insight. So we make it linear. And with how 
powerful the brain is in that state, it can create all kinds of stories around that. So it's about the discovery and not turning the discovery into a story. So yeah, this video is getting kind of long. Maybe I'll try to divide it up into two bits so it doesn't get stuck in the cloud. But I just thought that was really interesting. So I felt really excited yesterday about this EEG device and then I sort of relaxed and was like, okay, could you know, just add it to the possibilities when I go back home, once I get things sort of back in order and settle in, just figure out how I want to create this business of some kind, not really as some kind of profit thing, but just as a kind of structure of sharing that people actually understand. Thank you for listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.